However you feel about Nick Diaz, chances are it isn't indifference, and for good reason. For the last two decades, he's been one of the sport's most fascinating characters. I mean, there's a reason why he was the star of UFC 266, despite sitting smack dab in the middle of the card. However, it's that reason, or reasons which have been debated. What exactly is it about Nick that makes him so compelling, even today? I remember reading a piece by Jonathan Snowden years ago where he described Nick as a dose of punk rock, and I think that's appropriate. While punk is complex and has evolved over time, like Nick, the subculture has always been inherently non-conformist and anti-establishment, and if sincere, that can be intoxicating. That said, it was also that very nature which made the rumours of Nick launching War MMA, his very own promotion, seem so far-fetched. It didn't quite sound like an inmate running the asylum type situation, that goes too far, but it was kind of like John Jones becoming a life coach. There's no doubt that he has some valuable advice to offer, but I don't know, something tells me that he's the wrong guy for the job. Still, this incongruity only made Diaz's turn as a promoter all the more intriguing. I'm Rob from MMA On Point and this is War MMA, a retrospective. It would be an understatement to say that war emerged at an interesting time in Nick's life. He had ostensibly retired following an unsuccessful UFC title challenge, and despite making what I presume remains his biggest ever payday, an estimated $1.5 million in pay-per-view points on top of a $200,000 purse, he appeared to be in deep financial trouble, inexplicably admitting that he had never paid taxes. Cesar Gracie, his coach and manager, would incidentally challenge this, explaining that Nick had simply filed incorrectly, while Jonathan Tweedale, Nick's lawyer, indicated that Nick believed Caesar was taking care of his taxes for him. Whatever the truth, launching a promotion under these circumstances sounded completely preposterous. Take Dana White's reaction, for example. I thought he was a retired promoter now. Is that not the case? <laughs> What's your thoughts on that? Good friend. Yeah. Welcome to the losing money business. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the losing money business. And you know what? He's not wrong. In 2019, The Athletic published this piece detailing a promoter's expected bill, and it was extortionate. Fees included licensing, insurances, venues, staff, and of course, fighter pay, just to name a few. The last thing you want in addition to that is the IRS on your main financier's back, assuming Nick was that. Still, in mid-May, just two months after Nick's revelations, NickDiazPromotions.com went live. The California State Athletic Commission would then confirm its authenticity the following day, before a Ticketmaster listing set War's debut for June 22nd, 2013 at the Stockton Arena. Tickets which would go on sale on May 29th would start at $20, with ringside seats going for $90, although I'm not sure how much the Wolf tickets were. A press release would then confirm a plethora of bouts, including the main event featuring UFC vet Daniel Ninja Roberts versus Justin Baseman. but I'll talk about those once we get to the event. As for the choice of Stockton, that was, in my mind, both a no-brainer and irrational. On one hand, where else but the 209 would Nick debut his promotion? But on the other hand, the Stockton Arena holds about 10,000 people and there's no way that a regional show, famous promoter or not, shifts those volumes. For example, Nick had competed there in 2008 at an Elite XC show and of the 6,500 that attended, less than half paid. The rest were comped. Obviously, interest in both the sport and Nick had grown since then. Still, Elite XE was a hugely visible promotion for the short time that it was around. 
Anyway, War would also choose an interesting distribution strategy, streaming the event for free and giving viewers the option to donate. The most generous, by the way, would receive a pair of gloves signed by the Diaz brothers. While a forced in mixed martial arts, the pay-as-you-want model wasn't completely new in entertainment, although it was rare. Radiohead had popularised it with their 2007 release in Rainbows and by most contemporary measures, it was a big success. Now, it was never going to be a massive revenue driver for War, but I'd argue that those who watched and didn't donate wouldn't have bought a stream anyway. Moreover, the free press and goodwill generated was arguably just as valuable as the donations. The promotion would also get a little creative with their rule set. While they would use the unified rules, the usual cage was traded for a ring and grounded elbows were banned much like they were in Strike Force pre-Zufa. This shouldn't have come as a surprise either. Nick has always been a proponent of the ring, insisting that it favours the more technical fighter since stalling is generally minimised and strikers can more effectively cut off retreating opponents. He'd argue a similar reason for removing elbows too since they can encourage wrestlers to stall in guard while punches require space. In short, the idea was to encourage transitions and thus action, although Nick's detractors would argue that he liked the changes because they suited his style. There's also the inherent danger of open ropes. Yeah. So for the 48 hours ahead of the show, MMAfighting.com followed the war team to shoot a documentary and what we got was phenomenal. It opens in Nick's house, although he's not there. We hear Tweedale, Nick's lawyer, asking Siri for directions to Buffalo Wild Wings where the weigh-ins will soon take place. He then appears to be anticipating a siege or something. You guys, who's guarding the house? Who is guarding the house? bizarre. Anyway, Tweedale had been a commissioner in Vancouver before teaming with Diaz. However, this was really our first introduction to him and something seemed a little off. To me, he felt like a Safdie Brothers creation. Think an emotional roller coaster personified. That said, I wouldn't have expected total composure given his role. I make sure that everything gets done. I get everything done. Anyway, so we get to the weigh-ins, but they're delayed. Silver lining, it's happy hour. We then meet triathlete Damien Gonzalez, who's overseeing logistics and whose notes are almost as cluttered as mine. Top of the to-do list is to get all my random notes that I've just been pouring and organize them. It's then revealed that in true Nick Diaz style, some fighters are late, hence the delay. Jim Cooley, War's MC, would then tell Tweedale that some fans are leaving as a result, but Tweedale is like, Chill, man. Chill. Okay, I was initially upset because I was thinking, okay, this is going to be highly efficient. Boom, 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 boom. But look, it's, it's in a fucking pub. But every, there's no hurry. We can just chill. Proceedings would then finally get on their way and we get this sweet moment between Clayton McKinney and Mike Pearsons. He's got pretty eyes. Aw, by the way, their fight, or a fight during their fight, I'll explain later, would produce one of the more controversial moments of the night. Roy Barton and Mike Martinez weigh in next, and as you can see, Roy is taking this fight extremely seriously. We then catch up with Tweedale, and he's now the opposite of chill after Scott Lyonsburg, Borough, Borg? A reporter from the Stockton Record confronts him about the same thing you're probably wondering by now, namely, where the fuck is Nick Diaz? And you guys sent out a press release today saying that Nick was going to be here to answer questions. 
I get your point. He did say he was going to be here, though. Hey, is that, am good. I lying? There's a lot of fighters. A lot of fighters. Good We're discussion not talking about fighting. Victor, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah. So yeah, much like USADA, Scott was curious about Nick's whereabouts and Tweedale seems to imply that he wouldn't be there. His explanation is that Nick doesn't want to be the face of the promotion. For the record, Tweedale had alluded to this in interviews prior, saying that war was about giving fighters a platform, not Nick. And that's admirable, I think. The issue though, as you just heard, is that a press release did confirm that Nick would be available to the media. Plus there's also the fact that the event was literally being sold off of his name. But hey, maybe they're saving a special appearance for the show itself, we'll see. Anyway, the next sequence is unquestionably the piece de resistance of the entire dock. That target once again places us in Nick's house where we're told that it's one hour to war as Tweedale once again rambles on about protecting the house. Following me to secure the house? To secure the house? Yeah. He'd then try leaving but his phone charger catches the handle of the door and instead of untangling it, he just gives up and leaves it there hanging. I don't know, I thought that was, I thought that was hilarious. Anyway, things would soon go from bad to worse when he discovers that he's been locked out of his car, but fear not, this dude is here to help. They then must have realised that they needed a key to start the engine because they're back inside, where we hear that the stream has been attacked. Someone's attacked your stream! Notice how a distressed Tweedale is contrasted by my dude here just trying to kick back with his bomb. Oh, and I also noticed that Nick is apparently a Radiohead fan, so the pay-as-you-want strategy makes sense now. Anyway, regarding the attack, we don't know much other than Damien, the note-taking triathlete, is trying to fix it. I have, however, read claims that the server had crashed because of unexpectedly high traffic. Still, hacker or poor planning, it didn't help Tweedale's anxiety. But why does that hold up the stream that's available on live stream and all over the fucking place? Shut up! Get off the phone to start now! Now! I know, but I can't get it working myself. I'm the average MMA fan. And this other guy is a somewhat dim-witted MMA fan. Wait, did he just call that guy a dimwit? How rude. Also, how about this for a bad timing? Y yes, hello, it's Jonathan. Dominic who? Yeah, what, your tickets are in a will call? Ask at the arena. You can't be bothering me about your tickets. Ask the fucking staff at the arena. I also have to point out this shot. We have a seething Tweedale surrounded by an open liquor bottle, a bong, and a shirtless dude benching. Art. Anyway, we cut to the next shot and Tweedale is finally about to leave for the arena when we suddenly hear the war commentary team, TJ DeSantis and Javier Showtime Vasquez. Yes, the hackers have been thwarted or maybe sufficient bandwidth has been purchased. Regardless, the stream is alive and as Tweedale stands there smiling, you honestly can't help but feel happy for the guy. Hey everybody, I'm TJ DeSantis along with Javier Showtime Vasquez for the inaugural War MMA Show. So we open with DeSantis and Vasquez. They put a big emphasis on the ring saying that war is mixed martial arts how Nick Diaz would like to see it before our opening promo runs. The promo by the way is just a slideshow but check out the song. It's called This Is War by rapper Tom Stockton, presumably written for the event and it's all about Nick. Anyway we cut to Jim Cooley who asks the fans if they're ready and apparently they're not. Stockton, California, are you ready? Somebody does get a little excited about sponsor Ziggy Smoke Shop though. Ziggy Smoke Shop 
Anyway, our opening bout features debutants Aziz Rashid versus Derek Brown. Rashid, by the way, had apparently thought it was an 140 pound bout while Brown arrived for featherweight, hence the weird catchweight. Anyway, Brown dominates. He takes Rashid's back and holds it for most of the first. Rashid can only respond with punches, which is never a good sign. Round two isn't much different, although we do get a couple of exchanges. Referee Josh Rosenthal has also joined the commentary, by the way. We would get different guest commentators throughout the night, and while I liked the idea, the execution was pretty bad. Firstly, I doubt any of the guests had commentary experience, and secondly, the additional mic was awful. Josh Rosenthal joining us at uh, uh, ringside here at War MMA. Josh, welcome to the booth. Thank you very much, guys. Glad to be here. Anyway, Rashid has a decent final round, even landing this combination. We then get this stand-up by referee Ed Calantes, aka Jake Fratelli from the Goonies. Oh, the referees. Even Rosenthal couldn't explain that one. Anyway, Brown wins the decision. If I had to rate it, which, why not? Let's rate these fights. I'd push two stars out of five. That's in context, though, meaning considering their experience, or lack thereof, it wasn't bad. Next up, we have another pair of debutantes, Jordan Pell versus Mike Ortega, and it's wild. Scrambles and reversals galore, which I do love, but it's more a function of inexperience than technique. It also leads to a lot of tired clinching, particularly in round two. The only notable moment was this example of why rings are controversial in MMA. Anyway, Mike Ortega takes the split decision. It was sloppy like a jab at a hook kiss and wasn't my cup of tea, but it might be yours. 1.5 stars out of 5. Up next is Bo Hamilton, our first fighter with pro experience, versus a debuting Caesar Gracie fighter in Adrian Adana. Rosenthal is no longer on commentary, by the way, but just a few weeks later, he would be sentenced to 37 months in prison for conspiracy to manufacture and distribute marijuana. I'm not saying that's why Nick liked him, though. Anyway, for a newcomer, Adana looked good. He cuts Hamilton early, which prompts a look-see from the doctor, but it's okay, we continue. More good work from Adana in the second, aside from a dick kick, but you can really see the Diaz influence. It's making for a surprisingly fun fight too, but unfortunately, Dr. Buzzkill stops it between rounds due to the aforementioned cut, and the fans aren't happy. Well, except for this one girl. Two and a half stars out of five. This was fun and Adana looked impressive, which makes it more surprising that he'd only compete once more. Next up is Anthony Tatum versus Joey Cabezas. But before that, we're told that somebody has made an apt donation. Uh, I saw someone on Twitter make a donation of $4.20. Nice. Anyway, Tatum dominates the opening minutes of this, although his tendency to cheaply lose top position comes back to bite him when he's rocked and needs the bell to survive. He'd nevertheless recover and cruise to a decision, despite a few few fleeting moments from Cabezas. It was a split though, which was a little surprising. Two stars out of five. Like the opener, it was fine. We then see Nick talking to Jeff Sherwood of Sherdog fame. This would be the only time he's seen on the broadcast, by the way, meaning, yeah, they didn't save a special appearance for the event. And like I said, that's fine, but it would have been nice if we got something. An interview, a commentary appearance, something. That said, neither would have been Nick's style either, so his absence is actually probably fitting. He would, however, feature a little more in the dock, greeting fighters, fans, and enjoying the fights, particularly the ring. Clear, much better than the cage. Oh yeah. Look at that. Yeah. 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 
Anyway, next up is CJ Marsh versus Marcel Fortuna, who might be the first fighter you recognise thanks to his memorable UFC debut in 2017, knocking out Anthony Hamilton despite a near 50 pound weight disadvantage. He was impressive here too, cruising through the first with a nice takedown and solid striking. He'd subsequently get it to the mat again in the second, but this time passed the side control and hit a baseball choke. Two and a half stars, one-sided, but arguably the best performance we'd get all night. Plus, baseball chokes are a rarity in MMA, even these days. Next is Dominic Clark versus Chris Quidiquit, who both fight out of California, although Quidiquit reps Stockton, so he's our fan favourite. He would start well too, dropping Clark with a right hand, but Clark recovers and hurts Quidiquit in the second, opening a cut before working his ground and pound. The referee would break this up, however, when he sees Clark holding Quidiquit shorts, but it didn't matter. The doctor checks the cut and stops the fight. Clark wins by TKO. I'll give it two and a half stars despite the ending. It was fun and well matched. Also, does any anyone see the irony in two stoppages via cut on a Nick Diaz promoted event? Just me? Anyway, next we'd get an interview with Oakland's Xavier Vigny, who had just won the Road to Glory heavyweight tournament, and it was a bit awkward. Don't get me wrong, I get it. He could have had family and friends in attendance, and you need drink and piss breaks, but this one didn't work for me. Also, it should have been Nick. Just saying. We then get a bit of dead air before Mike Martinez fights our beer drinking Roy Barton. Caesar Gracie product James Chaney joins the booth for this one and promotes his upcoming bout against Joaquin Spiritwolf, which might be the greatest name of all time. Speaking of names though, look at the ones on Barton's resume coming in. Murillo Ninja Hua, Sokaju, Emmanuel Newton, and even a young Misha Sirkinov. Martinez at 0-1 obviously couldn't compare, but note that he was a short notice replacement. Regardless, this one was super quick. Martinez takes Barton Barton down, Barton hits an omoplata sweep, locks up a toehold, and take it away, Goldie. It is we missed the finish in real time because the stream inexplicably cuts to a wide shot, but the replay does show a verbal tap. Another two and a half stars, short but sweet, and like the Fortuna fight, we saw another novel submission, albeit frustratingly on the replay. Plus, it's evidence that it pays to choke beer, so cheers to that. Next up is Cody Gibson versus Darren Cooley, who must have had an issue backstage because he's introduced first, but Gibson makes the walk. He's then reintroduced, however, we're waiting like two minutes before he finally emerges. Moreover, in the middle of all this, we hear somebody tell DeSantis that K1 vet Terrell Diaz will be commentating. Hey, this is Terrell Diaz, he's a K1 veteran, he's gonna commentate with this makes me think that the guest commentary thing was a last minute decision too. Anyway, Gibson was arguably the best prospect on the card. Vasquez even predicts that he'd make it to the UFC, but let's see how he handles Cooley first. Round one opens and we have a striker versus grappler, at least as far as strategies are concerned. Gibson wants it standing while Cooley wants it on the mat. Cooley would even pull guard and force a leg entanglement, but Gibson escapes. Cooley would then attempt this sequence ad nauseum, but without any success. And don't get me wrong, I routinely encourage pulling guard if all else fails but here it was getting ridiculous like look at this one not giving him a respite though oh cody gibson a little exasperated with that Anyway, the referee would eventually take a point, but it was inconsequential since Gibson gets the finish, which was a little soft. Two stars. It was all right. Gibson would incidentally make it to the UFC though, going one and three before being cut. He's also still competing, most recently fighting and beating John Dodson in his first post-UFC bout. But having said that, he'll still always be remembered as that guy who said Google me before being sucker punched in a bar, unfortunately. Oh, dude. Yeah, let me get this real quick. Yeah. 
Anyway, next to the ring is our most experienced pair with 48 fights between them, DJ Linderman versus Mike Hayes. Interestingly, this would also complete their trilogy, although Linderman was 2-0, so it wasn't the rubber match. Speaking of Linderman, the production team got his nickname wrong. He's the protege, not the prodigy. Listen, there's only one prodigy in MMA and it's blasphemous to suggest otherwise. Get it right. Anyway, there wasn't much to this one. It's a striker versus a grappler with a grappler, Linderman, dominating. As for Hayes, he had this moment where he sat on the ropes to defend the takedown cool. He also partially lands a flying knee, only for Linderman to nearly tackle him through the ropes. That could have ended horribly. We then see a big takedown from DJ, a nice Kimura sweep from Hayes, who then has a half-decent spell before being taken down again, which was the story of the fight. Linderman wins the decision. I give it one and a half stars. Considering their experience, I expected more. Next up, Clayton McKinney fights Mike Pearsons. Remember, these are the guys who had that nice moment at the weigh-ins. Anyway, Nate Diaz is in Pearson's corner, and DeSantis mentions Pearson's stint on the Ultimate Fighter 17, where he was eliminated and didn't make it to the house. He also clarifies that since it was an exhibition bout, Pearson's remains undefeated. Vasquez offers this analogy, just in case you didn't understand. Yes, he he tasted defeat, but he didn't swallow. I am not going to touch that one. Okay. I don't know if that came out right. Anyway, McKinney's last appearance was also on Tough, although it was three years prior on season 11. The commentators strangely don't mention this, even though he did make it into the house. Regardless, he starts well. Lots of leg kicks, check hooks, and a strong clinch. And for somebody who hadn't competed for over three years, he's pretty composed until he gets hit. Then he gets wild. Good left hand by, by uh, Persons. Another one. Oh, right hand by McKinney too. Also, check out this conversation between DeSantis and Vasquez between rounds. Sometimes it messes up your rhythm when you get, sure. hit, when you get hit downstairs. Then you might come back in the second round, regroup, let the, um, let the little buddies uh, kind of heal. Did you call them little buddies? Yes. Little buddies, nice. We then get this throw by McKinney in round two, followed by this interesting guard breaker. No comment. The referee would then watch as Pearson's lands three low blows. Oh, that one definitely oh. hit him again. Referee stopping finally. Or as Vasquez calls it. Triple little buddy smashers. Oh, and remember I said we got one of the more controversial moments during this? Well, check this out. When we resume, we see this guy, let's call him Mike Beltran's dad, race around the ring. We then see security separating two people and one is evidently pissed based on all the shit they're talking. Vasquez would then clear up the situation. Security's gonna throw that guy out. He's getting into a fight with Nate Diaz. Looks like McKinney's corner has been escorted out. Seriously? Yep. Yeah, that's wild. You can also see it distracts McKinney, who would end the fight on the bottom, but he nevertheless wins the decision. Two out of five stars. It was decent. Actually, take two and a half stars. We almost got a Nate Diaz scrap and that's worth half a star. Anyway, we now have our co-main event, Evan Esquera versus Caleb Mitchell, aka the most interesting guy on the card. So get this, Caleb's dad was Artie Mitchell, a notorious pornographer who, in 1991, was murdered by his brother and producing partner Jim Mitchell. It was even immortalised in the movie Rated X, starring Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez. But that's not all. Caleb had actually earned his nickname, the Machete, when three bandits attacked him with, you guessed it, a machete, leaving him with multiple lacerations. He obviously escaped because here we are but man crazy anyway he makes a good start to this fight using the ropes to take mount 
Nice. He'd then spend most of the rest of the round on top before things take a turn in the second. He clinches, but he's reversed. He subsequently avoids a takedown by hooking a rope, but Esquera gets it. We then get some passing and ground and pound, followed by more in the third, despite Mitchell again holding the ropes. Esquera then hits a nice elbow before trapping Mitchell's arm to land three shots. You normally see this kind of thing on the ground, a la Brock Lesnar versus Frank Mir, so it was cool. Mitchell is now exhausted, by the way. He almost even falls through the ropes. Anyway, Esquera finishes big, arguably close to getting a finish, but does earn a unanimous decision. Solid performance and fight, two and a half stars out of five. Afterwards, Esquera gets a post-fight interview, our first of the night, which is a little surprising, but for the best in my opinion. The pacing would have suffered otherwise. Regardless, not much was said, so it's now time for our main event, Daniel Ninja Roberts versus Justin Baseman. As mentioned, Roberts had been cut by the UFC in 2012, but had won two fights since. Baseman was on a two-fight winning streak too and held the Gladiator Challenge welterweight and middleweight titles, which you could see during his walkout. Roberts, while titleless, was accompanied to the ring by Cesar Gracie, Gilbert Melendez and Jake Shields, one of the best corners you could ask for at this level. Round one couldn't have started any better for him either. He catches a kick, secures a takedown and lands what I counted as about 40 unanswered shots. Most did hit Baseman's guard though. Roberts then tries a guillotine before setting up an anaconda, but Baseman somehow survives and begins to take over over as it becomes clear Roberts' tank is empty. It's then all Baseman in the second. He gets a takedown and lands some decent shots. Roberts, now really exhausted, intentionally throws himself through the ropes to force a separation which the referee buys. This would nevertheless lead to Baseman's best sequence where he corners Roberts but ultimately lets him off the hook with a takedown. We're now into the third and final round and Roberts rejects a glove bump. Baseman responds with a Sensei Seagal special followed by a much needed takedown from Roberts who eventually transitions to mount. His follow-up punches are extremely laboured though as the fight comes to an end. I personally had a 29-28 Roberts but Baseman ultimately gets the split decision, which was surprising but not necessarily a huge robbery. Regardless, I'll give it 2 stars out of 5. Roberts, despite his pedigree, was underwhelming. In his post-fight interview, Baseman calls for a shot in the UFC, which he wouldn't get. He would, however, compete for Bellator 4 times, a stint which unfortunately included that devastating loss to Andrei Koroshkov. You also might recall his bare-knuckle boxing match against Chris Lieben in 2019. As for Roberts, he wouldn't make it back to the UFC either, fighting just three more times. The show would then end with our commentators teasing a potential war too, followed by a highlight package and then credits. So returning to our documentary, we can see some of what happened once the stream ended, including this interaction between Nick and DeSantis. Charlie Brown, bro, but I Ziggy, no, whatever no, bald ones can I think Charlie of? Brown. There's a little mousy character, I don't remember. Mousy, awesome. No, it was... Uh, yeah, it was Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? Secret of Nim. Secret of Nim, yeah. Yeah, see? That's crazy stuff. I've no idea, but that was awesome. Anyway, our intrepid reporter would get his interview, but Nick tells him that there's no immediate plans for a War too. Yeah, as far as anticipating what's going to happen in the near future, I no, I'm really. I'm so you're not even committed to it. I don't make plans one. like that. Yeah. Obviously, a sophomore effort would never happen, despite being teased multiple times, including in 2015. Why is anyone's guess, really? Maybe Nick's tax problems got in the way? I don't know, we never really heard what happened with that. But ultimately, war probably died for the same reasons most MMA organizations die. 
they require a hell of a lot of effort for such a small return. In an interview with Ariel Helwani, Tweedale claimed that the show had been watched by the equivalent of a sold out football stadium, so like 60 to 80,000 people. And considering that's total viewership, meaning those streaming as well as the reported 3,500 that attended, I honestly don't know what to make of those numbers. For a run of the mill regional show in 2013, it's a home run. But for War, which had a noticeably bigger budget than its counterparts, I'm not sure. You must also consider that half the tickets were probably comped, if we are to use the Elite XC show from 2008 as our guide. That means that about 1,500 tickets were sold in a 10,000 seater arena. I mean, it's no wonder why War 2 might have moved away from Stockton had it happened. Then there were the donations, and while we don't know how much was raised, we do know that the highest bidder dropped $420, naturally. As for the reaction, it was mostly positive, which I get. Was it a great show? No, it was a decent regional effort, which generally means mediocre MMA, especially if you're only used to the UFC stuff. I mean, given that for me, two out of five stars represents a decent fight and that two and a half stars was the highest I could go, that should tell you something. That said, notice that only two of the 12 fights fell below that two star threshold, so that should also tell you something. As for the ring and elbow rule, I personally wasn't the biggest fan. We still saw plenty of stalling and the ropes got in the way more than anything. That said, if I was in attendance, I'm sure I would have appreciated the ring, since it does significantly improve the viewing experience. I mean, how often are you drawn to the screen at a fight show using a cage? A lot, I bet. That doesn't nearly happen as much with the ring, at least in my experience. Besides, many regional shows don't have the luxury of having massive screens anyway. Regardless, what was undeniably impressive was how smoothly it all ran, both the show and the live stream. Disregarding the initial server issue, the delays were minimal. And while I think the whole package could have been better, you know, the aesthetics, production graphics, etc. I can't fault what mattered. I liked their choice of broadcast team, guest commentators notwithstanding. The ring was well lit, the camera work was perfectly adequate for the most part, and the matchmaking was solid, far better than most regional shows. In conclusion, I guess you could say it was actually kind of professional. But given that this was Nick Diaz Promotions, maybe professional is disappointing to those who wanted something a bit more punk rock. A big shout out to the hardcore casual Lawton Verkant for editing this video. You can follow him at Lawton underscore Verkant on Twitter. Make sure you like the video and subscribe to the channel. I will be back for more of these deep dives into some of MMA's more fascinating and oftentimes bizarre stories. But until then, you can follow me on Twitter at the Robert Palin.